The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views here in New York. And we've been away for a little while. We took a hiatus after the November election so we could, you know, like the rest of the world, absorb the shock of Donald Trump's astounding victory. But we're back and it's uh, just about summertime. So we're putting together a series, a series of interviews with people who've written books that deal with money, finance, business, politics, and the like. We're calling it Summer Reading. Um, But before we get to that, I wanted to take a little bit of a, well, a slight musical detour. I brought in Jordan Wolowitz, who's the founder of Founders Entertainment. He came to Times Square to discuss GovBall, or Governor's Ball, which is a three-day music festival that he founded with his buddy from boarding school, Tom Russell, and which heads into its seventh year this weekend. So Jordan and I chew over the economics of the whole live music business. Uh, He tells us a bit about his and Tom's journey in putting together GovBall against many competitive odds, not least being like a concert festival in the heart of New York City where, you know, there is not like an absence of opportunities to hear live music. Um, We also discuss his decision uh, to sell founders to Live Nation Entertainment, which is the biggest publicly traded concert and, and ticketing company in the world. They're at Live Nation. They're part of a stable of other promoters, including the dudes who put on Bonnaroo in Tennessee and Lollapalooza in Chicago and a whole bunch of festivals around the world. So put your musical ears on and tune in to hear my conversation with Jordan Wolowitz now. So you and Tom Russell, your other partner and founders, uh, came by a couple of years ago. You had just had a, a bit of a, of a scare because GovBall had been r- basically rained out one night. It was like hurricane gale force winds. And, uh, and you were, in a sense, a small New York business at the time. And now you're still in New York business. You're quite a bit bigger. You've got a couple of festivals. You've got GovBall, obviously, is your sort of your big one. And it's going into its seventh year pretty soon this coming weekend. But you've also become part of a, of a larger group, Live Nation. I mean... I just love to get your view on this, how you guys broke into the festival business, which even seven years ago, people would have thought was pretty saturated and have managed to create a, a pretty interesting you know, business out of that. Yeah. Well, going back to um, 2011, which was our first year, there was no really major New York City music festival. There were a few you know, niche festivals. There was Electric Zoo, which focused on electronic and Rock the Bells, which focused on hip hop. There was no broad, contemporary, uh, major festival here. People had tried and failed in the past, but... Well, the guys who did Coachella had tried out in New Jersey. Yeah, they had tried All Points West in 2008 and didn't work out. And so Tom and I, who became best of friends at boarding school back, you know, a few years earlier, I was an agent assistant at ICM, and Tom was working at Superfly, who were the producers of Bonnaroo, amongst other things. So this was in 2010, and we just started saying, you know, why don't we go for it? Why don't we be the first guys to do this music festival in New York? We have nothing to lose. We didn't have families or mortgages or, frankly, much money in our personal bank accounts. So we did it on Governor's Island, which is a beautiful place. But it's a pain to get to. you got to take the ferry. You have to take the ferry. There's no bridge. But the first year was not like what it is now. You know, we had two stages. We had 12 bands. It was only one day, only one ticket type, which was 99 bucks to get in. Our biggest band was our artist was Pretty Lights, who at the time was a DJ still playing clubs. And yet somehow we got um, over 18,000 people to pay to come to this one-day thing produced by guys no one had ever heard of. Right. We made money, which is relatively unheard of for a first-year festival. 
and it just kind of set us on this path to to keep growing you know the second year we went to two days we moved to randall's island because we had already outgrown governor's island after the first year increased the talent a little bit uh the second year went okay it went well experience wise went okay financially right. we had a little bit of growing pains but by that time there were whispers all around the industry of like hey these random kids were able to crack the code to do a festival mm-hmm. in new york let's just push them out of the way and go for it ourselves so just internally we circled up and said hey once again we don't have much to lose let's just go for it and so we booked the biggest lineup we could we got kanye west for a solo show in new york in half a decade 2013 was kind of year, the year that put us on the map as a major festival no longer we were this small kind of underground quote-unquote festival right, right and the timing was perfect because by the time 2013 hit there was the festival gold rush where people all of a sudden wanted to throw up festivals everywhere but we were we had planted our flag in new york right um and that kind of started it so, all. So, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, a couple, maybe two years ago, we, I sort of wrote a column about whether we'd reached peak festival business. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it seemed like every town, every second-tier town was, mm-hmm. even third-tier cities were, were hosting music festivals. And mm-hmm. you sort of got, you wondered whether or not there was just a saturation and, and um, whether or not there were enough people and weekends to justify the expenditure. What's your view? I mean, how do you think that... The festival model has sort of replaced, to a certain extent, the amphitheater model. Amphitheaters um, are still uh, a healthy business. Um, what is that, like the Red Rocks? It's, you know, that... Jones Beach right. in the New York market, PNC in New Jersey, Great Woods in, Philly, or in uh, Boston, yeah. and so on and so forth. But um, now if you live in Cincinnati or uh, even Des Moines, Iowa, or San Diego or wherever, There's like a there theme, is a music yeah. festival there now. Where, where you've seen some trouble with festivals is um, when people launch a festival and that market just has no need for it, as with any business. You know, it's like business 101 is like, are you filling a void in the marketplace? Um, is there demand for the product you're trying to well, sell? What's kind of interesting about you, you guys, I mean, New York, you wouldn't have thought needed a festival. I mean, right. I can go any night, any kind of, you know, any borough mm-hmm. and check out bands, check out. I can go to MSG and see Billy Joel, if I wanted mm-hmm. to, whatever big big guys, I can see the you know the national band. You know, there's just so mm-hmm. many things you can see. Mm-hmm. You you know, New York. It's kind of a. I mean, in a sense, it's it seems to be one of those uh, situations where you you arguably didn't need a music festival, which was why one of the reasons why for a while people would try and fail. But I think, as with a lot of things in life, the timing was pretty perfect because with our generation, you know, millennials, there was just a need for festivals because yeah. it was really indicative of a lot of things. Millennial, like um, how we listen to music now with streaming, it's all a la carte. It's all at our fingertips. Everyone's palette of music is more diverse than ever. People want to hear hip hop and rock and folk and country and DJs and everything. And going to a music festival is kind of similar to looking at someone's Spotify playlist. Right. Um, you can sample it. You can go from one everything. stage to yeah. the next. Yeah. Even if you, you know, of course, you're going to come to governor's ball this year if you love chance the rapper and lord um in phoenix but if you want to go come discover all these cool bands which you may or may not have heard of it's a great way to discover new music and then also you know nowadays everyone's glued to their cell phones and their computers and just screens and there is a need for social interaction right and music festivals like if you come to GovBall next week and you'll walk around, you'll just see people just hanging out together and so having a good time. So it's the experience. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you, you tapped into something that so the marketers talk about, which is the sort of ex- selling experience, not just selling, you know, the record or the music. Or You're mm-hmm. actually selling the whole kit and caboodle. And to that end, what else are you guys doing besides you don't just have a bunch of bands? No, it's not just bands and stages. I mean, one thing um, 
that we pride ourselves on is also our food and drink program. You know, we um, work with friends of ours over at The Infatuation, which are a big kind of food blog that are that is run by actually oh, yeah. ex-music industry guys. Um, and they've kind of grown as we've grown. But we work with them to curate our food program featuring a lot of, like, great New York City local restaurants so people can walk around and sample, like, you know, great Mexican or lobster rolls or whatever mm. Korean food from New York um, city establishments as well as like local beer and wine companies and all this stuff and then there's we um, employ and commission a lot of local New York City artists to build art installations so if you have an hour to kill in between artists that you want to see on stage you can walk around and eat some good food and drink a good beer and go check out some cool art installations right. or nope. just sit on the hill and just watch people People watching is outstanding at festivals. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Um, so w- w- last year we saw Bonnery, you mentioned before, had a mm-hmm. dip in ticket sales. And mm-hmm. a lot of people were looking at in the industry going, oh, you know, is that mm-hmm. is that a lineup problem? Is it a is it a is it a, a signal that festivals have sort of reached a peak? I mean, what, how do you? It, it, so that? the first Bonnery was my senior year in high school and which uh, is 2002. And if you lived on the East Coast, for the most part, mm-hmm. if you lived on the East Coast, there was Bonnery. If you lived on the West Coast, there was Coachella. Lollapalooza was still a touring kind of amphitheater event. The first Austin City Limits came up later that fall. So there was all the festivals you know now, all the A festivals, weren't really around besides Coachella and Bonnaroo. So Bonnaroo, I mean, friends of ours drove down from Connecticut and Maine and all over the country to get to Bonnaroo. But like we were just discussing, if you live in... Ohio or Illinois or Connecticut or New York or wherever, you don't really need to leave town to go to a festival. So to be a destination festival, it's it's an interesting time to be one because convincing someone to go out of their way to get to you um, is a tall task because it can't just be lineup driven. So, you know, Bonnaroo was, you know, it was to a certain extent the inspiration for what Tom and I do now because... um, we looked up to the Superfly guys. Time worked for them. You know, they were friends of mine. Right. But going to Bonnaroo when we were in our late teens and early 20s was just the best. And right. it, it's, an, it's an amazing festival. Um, they're, I think they're real, their real challenge is just they need to convince people who already have a festival in their hometown to go to Bonnaroo instead. Right, right, right. Now, you guys, uh, Founders Entertainment, which, which you and Tom founded mm-hmm. um, and started you sold that, or you sold a big chunk of it, I guess, to Live Nation, which is the, the big, the largest promotion art, you know, music uh, company, effectively, uh, publicly traded in the world. Congratulations on that! But I'm just curious, like, what went into that decision? Why did you decide to partner with Live Nation? Um, there were a number of reasons. I mean, it was uh, Michael Rapino, their CEO, is someone we'd really, you know, from afar was someone that we just look up we looked up to and respected in terms of the moves he had made in the business over the last decade or so. And they ended and up just to, you know, they bought they also bought the as you say the guys who put on Bonnaroo, mm-hmm. the folks who put on Lollapalooza. C3 presents, yeah. And, and we were and watching Austin City Limits. They were in Live Nation was investing in a lot of promoters that we looked up to. The guys who were doing the festivals when we were still in high school and in college. And uh, you know, by twenty fifteen, you know, we just had done our, our fifth governor's ball. We realized that we we wanted to grow the company and to do more and to become, you know, a bigger promoter. And, you know, oftentimes a good entrepreneur knows when it's time to take an investment. 
when it's time to take on a partner because we no one else had a single penny mm-hmm. invested in our company at the time. And we, you know, had the idea for the Meadows, which is the new fall festival that we launched in 2016. Yeah, that's right. Where are you doing that? that Um, That's at City Field in in Queens. Additionally, Live Nation has more resources than any music company in the world, you know, for a promoter in terms of their access to certain headline artists, ticketing capabilities, um, all sorts of different areas of technology. And uh, like we were just discussing with the promoters that they're in business with, we wanted to be part of that team. We had a number of people come to us to either try to acquire a piece of us or invest in us or whatever, and um, they were far and away the, the best people we could have chosen. And how has life changed from being part, having them being you know big owners of the business? Um, really, we just have better access to information. So, like, what artists is available or who what they're yeah. Looking I mean, to do you know, or... we still have our autonomy. You know, I'm still sitting here talking to you, I'm wearing a t-shirt and a backwards hat and jeans, <laughs> and. Um, you know, our office is still in the East Village. My found, my email address is still at Founders Entertainment. Right. Um, we still have our team of seven employees, but I can pick up the phone and call, you know, the guys at C3 to see who they're looking at for Lollapalooza or ACL. I can talk to the um, guys in the Live Nation's Los Angeles office about um, the headline acts they have touring in 2018 and 19 and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more. So it's really just the access to information that as independent promoters in the East Village in New York with an office of nine people. We just didn't have that access um, before we did this. And, and, and if we did, it was we were purely relying on our individual relationships. You is know? there any sort of, have you had to beat back any idea, suggestion that you're now part of a corporate ownership and, hey, man, like you, we for whatever festival? For whatever reason, no. And maybe it's because a lot of the other great festivals had already partnered with Live Nation or, I got, you know, our other promoters before us. So people kind of knew that they're, that, everything was going to be okay, I guess. But also people came to Governor's Ball last year and the Meadows too, and saw it was still a founder's event. You yeah. know? It was us walking around. It was our staff. Um, it had our same vibe. So some don't. Yeah. How difficult or more or easier is it to get you know, bands to come out now, or with the, how have the expectations of the bands changed? Oh, I mean, not just because you're part of Live Nation, just, I mean, just over the years. Uh, X... Um, and, uh, it ha- I don't think it's necessarily gotten any easier to close a deal. You know, we mm-hmm. still have to be pretty sharp about everything. But like I said, we it's it's sometimes with certain major A-list artists, it's it's it can be easier to get a seat at the table with their representatives right. for them to hear you out. Um, when before, you know, it's like who's Jordan and Tom and who's Founders? Right. Um, you know, we've heard of GovBall, um, and now that the festival is most importantly, the Governor's Ball is Governor's Ball. It's the biggest festival in New York. So I think whether we had taken on. Um, an investor or not, bigger artists are still um, have their eye on us in their touring plans. But, you know, like I said, it's just uh, we have a seat at the table now with some people that we might not have um, gotten to yeah. before. Yeah. And ha- how have the economics of the whole the whole business shifted? I mean, in, in the sense, was it how important is the ticket sale to the overall uh, take, you know, for for the for for the promoters and how how much have artists increased their, you know, they're now have got so many competing offers, obviously, to yeah. do all these. So does it become, do they become more expensive or their demands change? Likewise, you know, you look at Live Nations, I look at their numbers, you know, sometimes, and you see, you know, the, the place where they make their money is often, you know, promotion and, and marketing, not so much tickets. Well, you know, uh, the, the, the ticket sales sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, the beauty of, um, of festivals from a business level is just all the ancillary revenue streams we have. You know, right. sponsorship is, is a huge one. Um, concessions, huge one. Merchandise. 
there are just so many ways now to kind of yeah, right, right. I- increase the pot, you know, right. so to speak. When if you are just doing a show at Madison Square Garden as a promoter, you get a very minor cut of the net of ticket profits. You don't get concessions. You might not even get no, a rip off the sponsorship. So the ability to make a significant amount of money at a festival is much different than doing just a, typ- a typical show at an arena or a club or anything like that. The costs for the regular artists have kind of stayed the same, and but for headliners, it's gotten you know. For some of them, they can charge what they want because they're worth it. You know, right? If, uh, um, well, they'll bring in the they bring in the people. They bring in the people for us, but also they can kind of sit back with the facts and say, you know, um, if it's Beyonce headlining Coachella, she can say, "I'm worth four Rose Bowls or three Rose Bowls, whatever it was." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> that's 180 thousand tickets, and I made X playing these shows, so pay me. Right, and right. Most promoters say okay because they know they're gonna, you know, get the return on it. You know, investing in talent is like investing in stocks. You know, so you, you pay a lot for the good ones, and if you're taking a risk on a, on an unproven one, sometimes it can reap huge rewards or it can backfire. Right, right. Um, how have, how has your relationship with the city changed over time? I mean, you know, at first they must have been like, like, who are these kids? You know, and what a pain! I got to put twenty five more officers out there. Yeah. Now, of course, you're a big event, and you know, certainly there's security questions and concerns that you have to. We address. have a great relationship with with the city, with NYPD, FDNY, the Randall's Island Parks Alliance. Tom, my partner, it's kind of his job to to deal with the city on a lot of stuff. And Jen Stiles, our festival director, deals with uh, Randall's Island. And we're in our seventh year now, and we've always been very respectful of them. We raise money for um, Answer the Call. They're our biggest charity partner, which um, raises money for families of um, the NYPD and FDNY who mm-hmm. lost loved ones in the line of duty. So our relationship is great with them, and they've always you know, been very helpful um, with us, especially up to this point because we were a local homegrown New York City company, New York City event. Yeah, um, how how do you see the business developing over? I mean, what would, what would t- GovBall twenty twenty seven look like? You think? Um, will we all be doing it on you know on uh, VR goggles or? No, no. I think you know going back to what I said about people needing kind of human interaction. I think for the people who can't get into the show because it's sold out, maybe they can watch it on a virtual reality thing on their couch. But you know, we want to be like. New Orleans Jazz Fest or like, you know, Coachella, who's almost 20 years old, you want it to be just an annual rite of passage for people. Glastonbury? Yeah, Gla- <laughs> yeah. I mean, God, especially the European ones, which have been around for decades. Right, right, um, right. It's an annual rite of passage, and we want to be a part of the um, process of growing and developing artists um, and watching headliners, headline Governor's Ball 2027, who played at noon on our smallest stage at GovBall 2017. You know, we plan to be around for a while. All right. Well, good luck with the uh, GovBall number seven. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. An excuse to get out to Randall's Island this weekend or uh, the local festival of your choice. Because let's face it, there are a whole lot of festivals to choose from. It seems like even podunk towns have their own version of a GovBall nowadays. Uh, As promised, we'll be back with a series of scintillating conversations with people in finance and business and politics who not only have books to shill, but fascinating insights to share as we produce our summer reading series here at The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Bethel Habte and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes or anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob1Cox. Thanks for tuning in and adios. Thank you.